the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, new focus on wealth with certified financial planner, Chad Burton, drawing from his 28-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New focus on wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome into the show. I'm your host today, Chad Burton, certified financial planner. Today, I wanted to do a bit of an update on the seven tests to determine retirement readiness and happiness. And the reason why is because I had a conversation this last week that made me want to revisit the seven tests podcast that I typically update about once a year. A couple came in for a second opinion on their investments. I began to review this portfolio of annuities and high cost loaded mutual funds on a pretty decent sized portfolio, a couple million dollars. And what happened was, is they were working with a so-called advisor who told them two years ago that they could retire. The same advisor happened to work on commissions. So that advisor told them, yeah, go ahead and roll over two large 401ks into these various products. The advisor made a ton of money, a ton of commissions in doing so. And told them that they're, yeah, they're, they should be fine to retire. Now, the problem is when I took a look at this couple's expenses, I re- realized that they were set to run out of money by the time they were 90 years old. So when this, you know, so-called advisor, and let's just call him in, in basically a, a in insurance and a broker commission-based salesperson, They got bad advice. The person was looking for a commission. So that person looking for a commission said, yes, you're okay to retire. Here's a projection at a really high rate of return. And then 2022 comes along where both stocks and bonds are down. And all of a sudden, this couple doesn't really have a plan. They just have a bunch of high fee products that have surrender charges that they can't get out of. They went to a commission-based salesperson to get advice, and that person's advice was to retire and roll over. And it was very biased. So telling people that they have to cut expenses or go back to work because they retired too soon or invested in garbage products is one of the occasionally really difficult conversations we as certified financial planners have to have. And, you know, sometimes people come in, they think that they're ready to pull the trigger on retirement because they have reached a certain number. Let's say they had a $1 million number, a $2 million number in their their head that they had to save and then they could probably retire that they created when they were 30 or 40 years old. But they didn't go beyond that. They didn't do any planning beyond saving for a magic number. 
And so they think they're really close to retirement, but because of their expenses, taxes, unexpected healthcare costs, willingness to help too much with their kids' education, or even financially enabling other loved ones that are a financial disaster that you keep kind of creating the cycle for them. You know, sometimes people find out that they're not as close as they think, that they're not done. And honestly, that's a better relationship to have than somebody blowing smoke saying that, yeah, you're good to go. You're good to retire because they're trying to earn a commission. You have to have a realistic, very detailed cash flow projection that includes taxes and these various tests that I'm going to talk about. A linear cash flow test, a test for market corrections, a tax test, a safe money or market correction test. Um is Monte Carlo simulations, long-term care stress tests, and a life plan test. And so how do you know that you're ready to retire beyond re reaching this certain portfolio number? And number seven, I'm going to tell you, is most important in retirement. This, this life plan test. Like, What are you going to actually do in retirement to stay physically active, mentally active, and to be happy? Because I've seen a lot of people in the over 28 years that I've been doing this retire with a lot of money, but they have no idea how to spend it. They watch it too much. They become very inactive physically and not happy. So health, fitness, relationships, it's all very, very important. We're going to save that till the end. And by the way, if you're listening live on radio, we might end up running out of time on this one. And if so, I'll finish it on the podcast you can just go to chadburton.com or apple or you know wherever you get your podcast and you can find it new focus on wealth so let's talk about the tests that you need and and before any of these tests this is assuming that you've actually gone through and figured out all of your expenses and expenses are both discretionary and non-discretionary. In other words, you have expenses that put, put, put the food on your table and they keep the lights on in your home. Those are non-discretionary. You got to have them, right? But you also need activities and plans that are going to motivate you to get out of bed in retirement. You got your entertainment, your you know, golfing, pickleball, your travel, philanthropy, whatever those plans are, those can be discretionary expenses. And you need to know those numbers because... If you're just planning on putting food on the table and keeping your cable bill and lights on and things like that, that's not a very fun way to live. The other thing you have to do is realize your annual taxes in some way, shape, or form. We'll get into a, this a little bit later, but for most people, 85% of your Social Security is taxable income. Interest on your bank accounts, that's taxable. Dividends and interest on your non-retirement accounts that you get a 1099 on, you're going to pay taxes on them. When you sell stocks or mutual funds for a gain, you're going to pay taxes. Your real estate income minus your expenses and your depreciation, that's taxable. And when you draw money out of your IRAs and 401ks that have never yet been taxed, that's taxable. So again, we'll talk about a little bit more about this in number three, but you have to have a certain idea of what you're going to pay when you draw money out of your portfolio and have that all into your expenses, including healthcare costs. Now, for the average person in retirement, we're putting in nearly close to $7,000 a year of healthcare costs, even after you're age 65. Because you got Medicare Part B, which is typically $164.90 a month. 
And uh, but then you got supplemental insurance, you got co-pays, you got average dental costs and other things that tend to add up on top of that. So you have to think about your healthcare costs, typically close to $7,000 a year per person growing at 5% inflation. The other thing that you have to think about is, are you a high income earner uh, in retirement? And that is when your modified adjusted gross income that includes tax-free bond income. If you're single and, and that number is over $97,000 or you're married filing jointly and that number is over about $194,000, you start paying even more money for your Medicare Part B premium. You can go from $164.90 a month all the way up to $560 a month if you're a really high income earner in retirement. So you have to be aware of your expenses. So this assumes that you've gone through that, that test, that you've been tracking your expenses You've pulled out the things that will no longer exist, but you put in the things that you don't you haven't had time to do, like travel and and like I said, golf, exercise, uh, volunteer work, uh, certain doctors that I know that do the doctors without borders, those types of things that what are those expenses? Are you going to travel more to see your grandkids? Uh, are you planning on helping grandkids with education? Those types of things all need to be thought about. The other thing that you have to think about is, is your home. What about different things that need to occur over time? You have maintenance costs on your home, eventual remodel costs. Every so often you need to put a new roof on your house. So there's also these, these what I call lumpy expenses. In our plans, we call them other expenses that occur randomly throughout life. Uh, for example, with two sons and two daughters. So obviously, to two daughters, my wedding costs for them eventually might be higher. See what I mean? So it, th those types of a new car every so often, those things that need to go into a plan. And so once you have all of those expenses dialed in, then we can get into the very first test, which is a conservative linear cash flow model. And that's where you have everything in one place, all of your expenses, your income sources, social security, pensions, real estate income. Everything all in one area where you can see a cash flow projections at a very conservative rate of return with a decent amount of inflation on all of these expenses so that you can say, in my linear cash flow model, how long is my money going to last? Am I going to have enough money to last till age 100? Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases always packed pass or the wait. I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass. The will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiradopass.com. So talking about test number one on your retirement plan, and that's just the linear cash flow model, which is what most financial planning software programs do, whether they're the free, terrible online ones or really in-depth financial planning software programs uh, that calculate annual tax bills and, and everything else they're typically the they're a linear cash flow model where you're assuming the same rate of return every single year so i can tell you that every single cash flow projection is 100 wrong it's never going to be a, a linear situation where you look at the stock market here's the average rate of return and this is what you're going to get every year that's not how it works 2021 way up 2022 took it all back right sometimes the stock market is a two steps forward three steps back process or well more of a three steps forward two step back type of a process 
Um, but on the linear cash flow model, you have to use a conservative rate of return. Yes, stocks have averaged over 10, 11% over the last you know, 50 plus years, but that's not you're not just invested in stocks. You typically have a diversified portfolio with stocks, cash, bonds, real estate, commodities, and things like that. But on this first linear cash flow model test, you want to say, okay, can I survive on a 5.7% rate of return? And I'll explain that in a minute. With my expenses inflating at 3.25% inflation. So 5.7% rate of return with 3.25% inflation. You have to realize that with inflation, the value of a dollar is cut in half at about every 15 to 18 years or so. So you're going to have to draw more and more out of your portfolio every year to keep up with inflation. Now, 3.25%, one of the first questions I'm going to get right now, is inflation high enough in that scenario? Why would I use such a low number when inflation was you know, 9% plus over the last few years? Well, over the last few years, we had you know, the PPP loans as a result of COVID. We had people sitting at home buying cars, RVs, boats. Uh, you know, Mortgages were really low, so the price of real estate got pushed up. And inflation, well, the supply chain was a wreck, right? And that's starting to, to come around. Um, now, do I think we're going to have as low as inflation that we had in the last really 15 years? No, I think that it's a little sticky right now. I think we have some wage inflation issues to deal with. Um, wages at the lower end of society need to come up so that people can afford to live. Uh, and, and so we will see a period of higher inflation, but I think in the long run, inflating your typical expenses at two and a half percent retirement. And 5% on healthcare costs is fine. So that's why I'm using this 3.25% kind of a blend here. In retirement, you can tend to control your expenses a little bit more. When you're a family of you know, four to six, like in my case, let's say you have a lot of mouths to feed, a lot of you know, growing teenagers that are eating a ton of food, and then all of a sudden you're empty nesters and you can control your spending a little bit more. And in retirement, you have that smiley face spending pattern where you spend a lot more in the beginning of retirement. And then as you age, you don't eat out as much, you don't travel as much, and your expenses start to decline. And then you get into your late to late 70s to 80s and, and health insurance costs go up. So it's that's why I say like, you know, even your spending is like a smiley face pattern versus a straight line from the bottom left to the top right with inflation. But these numbers are 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 decent to use. Now, now why do I use this 5.7% rate of return that I've up, uh, updated here a little bit? Well, you have to look at a period of time, and it's really quite interesting right now because now if we look at a 15-year period, we have not only we have we have really the worst two years in stock market history for a balanced portfolio, right? So we obviously had 2008 which was you know, in the middle of the credit crisis where the stock market was down quite a bit. The average balance portfolio was down around 26% in 2008 because bonds actually acted as a bit of a buffer. The stock market was down way more than that, but bonds were slightly up. But then 2022 rolls along where the stock market, the S&P 500 was down almost 18% and bonds, because interest rates skyrocketed, were down about 13%. So we had balanced portfolios in 2008 doing, you know, down around 26% or so, and then down 16% in 2022. 
So now if we look at a 15-year historical period on some of the funds that are out there, some of the balanced funds, we can kind of see in a really difficult period of time what would happen. Now, if I look at a well-known fund out there, and this is not a recommendation, I wouldn't own this fund because I do things a bit differently, but it's easy to look up historical performance here. You have Vanguard Life Strategy Moderate Growth, symbol VSMGX. And if you look at Vanguard's website, you'll see that since 1994, the thing has averaged 7.22% as a balanced portfolio, kind of like that 60% stocks, 40% bonds type of a, an allocation. If you look at that uh, fund from the beginning of 2008, right in the middle of so the, the stock market topped out during the credit crisis in October of 2007 and started to decline. So 2008 was a real rough year. And if you look at that 15-year period from January of 2008 to essentially the end of 2022, 5.67% average rate of return. Rough period of time. You've got the two worst years of a balanced portfolio that I can think of in stock market history. Now, 5.7, I would say that if, if I receive that rate of return over the long haul, I'd be kind of disappointed, right? I'd expect more over a 20-year period, for sure. Now, look, stocks are going to continue to do well over your lifetime. Over the last 50 years, the S&P 500 has averaged close to 12% per year with dividends reinvested. And this was positive over the last uh, 50 years, approximately a little over 73% of the time. One of the things to note, though, is we had great bond market returns since 2008 because Rates were declining to stimulate the economy. Declining rates mean bond prices went up. So your total return between the increasing value of bonds and the interest that bonds were paying were much higher than the norm. And the opposite occurred in 2022. Bonds price, interest rates went way up and bond prices went way down. Now, I will say that bonds are way more attractive now than they were in 2021. But interest rates on bonds, the amount that you're paid if you loan money to the government or to a corporation, the amount of money that you're paid on a monthly or quarterly basis is much lower than it was back in 2007. All right, so you're still sitting under 4% as of today, end of February 2023. So I record this one. You're, you're still sub 4% on the U.S. 10-year Treasury. That was over 6% in 2007. So you could get a lot more money of income on your bonds. It's much better though than it was last time I did the seven tests. So I'm using a higher rate of return on bonds. But look, if stocks continue to tend, will you know, continue to average over your lifetime, 20 plus years period, 10 to 11% average annual returns, that's with dividends reinvested. In retirement, you turn on the tap, you spend those dividends. So I'm going to use 8% rate of return on, on stocks because I'm spending the dividends. The biggest issue is with the bonds. So if you, just a quick example, if you had a million dollars and you had a 50-50 portfolio balance, 50% in stocks earning 8%, 35% in bonds earning 4%, and 15% in cash earning 2%, that's $57,000 of growth in income. That's a 5.7% rate of return. So you have to ask yourself, if I go through a period in retirement where the first decade or two is slow or low growth like we, went, like we just went through, how would that look? That's test number one. Hi, this is Chad Burton. If you have questions about retirement and investing, it's time to get some answers. My website, chadburton.com, has a ton of resources. There are downloads to help you determine how long your money will last in retirement, 
links to our webinars, and several videos discussing everything from retirement planning to tax-efficient investing, estate planning, insurance, and even saving for your kid's college. While you're there, also check out our tax planning and estate planning services and our video explaining our online wealth management tool. You can find links to the podcast at chadburton.com and please like my Facebook page, New Focus on Wealth with Chad Burton. This invaluable resource is able to show the values and allocations of all your accounts regardless of where they're held. Information is updated each day at the end of market close and these new numbers are fed into the financial projections we've created for our clients with the goal of constant financial clarity. You can find links to the podcast at chadburton.com and please like my Facebook page, New Focus on Wealth with Chad Burton. We're only on test number two. So if you if you don't get it all during the radio show today, just make sure you go to chadburton.com or Apple, anywhere you get your podcast and you can listen to the full version of it. Test number two is testing your portfolio for major market corrections. And this is part of your risk tolerance. Market did this for you last year in 2022. S&P 500 was down almost 18%. Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, which is a measure that most bond fund managers put themselves up against, down about 13%. So when you look at uh, a typical Vanguard balanced fund, like VBIAX or VSMGX, those are down about 16%. So again, like I mentioned earlier in the show, probably the worst year for a balanced investor, a 60-40 investor since 2008. Now, if you're not in retirement yet and you're still working and you're you're consider yourself an aggressive investor and you continue to buy stocks all last year, you're like 16%, that's not much, right? If you write down negative one six percent sign, that's that doesn't really look like much. Now, you have to realize though that once you retire, you go from feeding your portfolio every two weeks out of your paycheck with your 401k to drawing on it. All of a sudden you're realizing, oh my gosh, this is my limited resource. And I see risk tolerance drop a lot right as people retire. And so you have to equate these types of returns to a dollar value. So let's say you're retiring with a $2 million portfolio that you planned on pulling 70 grand a year from it. That $2 million portfolio all of a sudden drops 16%. That's a $320,000 decline on paper. How are you going to deal with that? Do you have a plan to get through that bad period of time, which we'll talk about here in a minute? Do you, do you, can you, are you going to be able to sleep at night? Are you going to panic and go to cash? What are you going to do? You have to be able to equate the negative numbers with an actual dollar figure on that size of your portfolio. And then if you do have a year like last year and you didn't have a plan, you didn't have enough cash or safe money like I always talk about to get through these market corrections, are you going to adjust your spending by 16% this year because your portfolio is down 16%? That's really hard for a family to do. All of a sudden, a 16% reduction in expenses. You're going to cut out all of your fun in retirement? That doesn't sound good. Now, what you do is you reset your financial plan. You redo your model and you can realize that, okay, I can make a minor adjustment to my expenses forever until recovery occurs versus I'm going to cut my expenses by you know 16 to 20% for the next several years and just suffer until the market recovers. You don't have to do that. Yeah, This is why you have a dynamic financial planning model. Uh, our clients' websites kind of re, re, you know, redo this based on market closes at the end of the day. They can see their cash flow projections. The reason why you should look at the dollar value in in relation to a percentage of a decline 
and why this is a test is because most financial planning mistakes and investing mistakes are made when people panic. They cash out when their fear level is the highest, which is typically the best time ever to invest. And if you do that, you turn paper losses into real losses. And then you say, okay, well, I'm, the market looks scary. I'm going to cash out and it starts to decline. But as soon as you cash out, you have to realize that stocks pay dividends. About 2% of the total return of the S&P 500 is from dividends. And as soon as you go to cash, you lose out on those dividends. Those dividends could have been being reinvested or you could have been spending them while you're going through a market correction. But as soon as you go to cash, you lose out on your dividends and interest from your stocks and bonds. And then you have to pick the right time to get back in and nobody ever does. They always end up selling, even if they sell towards the top and miss some of the decline, then the market starts to skyrocket and it goes beyond where they sold at. And so they get back in later and they cycle all over again. They do it all over again. And in that meantime, they lost out on all of those dividends and interest. As advisors, we have access to software that we can take actual holdings and metrics, such as correlation, standard deviation, things like that, and show hypothetical examples of a 20% stock market, typical stock market correction during a recession. What does that look like? What did that type of a portfolio do during a huge bear market like 2007 to the bottom of, of uh, March of 2009? How, how did that look on your portfolio? How would that make you feel if you saw that type of a return? What about if you have too much in one stock? What's the added risk to the portfolio? A big issue in the Bay Area, right? People retire and they've got their... RSUs invested and they just held on to like the employee stock purchase programs that they continue to hold on to. What's the added risk of having too much in one stock? I don't like in retirement when more than 3% is in a single stock. Can you add other assets that are negatively correlated to that stock itself to help hedge the position? And it, because Cisco is a perfect example. If you look at the last five years, for example, if you retired and you had most of your portfolio in Cisco because you retired from Cisco, you're talking about pretty disappointing results. Over the last five years, the stocks lagged the S&P 500 by almost 28% in total return. So you could have sold that return would have paid your taxes over time. There's also other things to do that create income and slowly whittle away at a highly concentrated position in retirement, such as doing covered calls, which is a whole other show on its own. But you got to get some market history you got to educate yourself a little bit and take a fresh risk tolerance test as you go into retirement. And now I've said this for years, but now you finally see it that stocks and bonds can go down at the same time like they did in 2022. I've been preaching the safe money, which is test number four. We'll get to here in a little bit, hopefully before the show's over. But stocks and bonds can go down at the same time. But also note that markets always recover. It's just a matter of how long do you have to wait. Because over a longer term history, if I look over, you know, over 75 years, stock market tends to average 11%, tends to be positive 70% of the time. But guess what? It rarely ever comes close to returning between 9 and 13%. It's usually, you know, flatter or much higher in the 20 plus percent range. When the stock market is down in that, you know, over a longer period of time, 30% of the time period, that the average decline is about negative 13%.
But man, I tell you what, if you would have cashed out in March 2009, I've been in the business for over 28 and a half years. So started in 93-ish. And, you know, watching the market and dealing with the stock market and investors from 2007, October 2007, when things were just looking way too overvalued, all the way to the bottom of March 2009, those people that cashed out at the bottom, their financial plans probably been decimated. They last the they they missed out on the last thirteen years of run up here, if they would have cashed out at the bottom. The S and P five hundred is up almost six hundred percent since March of two thousand nine, which is the scariest time in recent market history to be an investor. And that's the last thing you typically want to do is panic out. If you have a plan going into retirement on how you deal with those types of corrections, it'll make those periods of time much less scary. Now. We're going to get to that in number four, which is three years where the portfolio draws test. But number three is what we have to get to first, and that's the test for taxes. Because before we determine your final asset allocation, we have to know how much cash you need in each account. And we have to know which accounts you're going to be drawing from first. In a linear cash flow model, the financial planning software that is out there if you don't do any programming of which accounts to draw from first, a linear cash flow model will cause the financial plan to draw from the lowest yielding taxable accounts first, like your cash in the bank. And then once that's gone, it'll go towards your other non-retirement accounts in the same fashion, the lowest yielding ones first. And the, the linear cash flow model is not going to show any IRA or 401k income until you're over age seven, until you're 73 or over, which is the age of required minimum distributions when you have to start pulling money out. And even then, the financial planning software is going to say, let's pull out the minimum that we need to from the IRA account and draw down all the taxable accounts first. Well, that might be one of the worst things you can do. Because if you draw down all your cash and your taxable accounts and you get to be you know, mid to late 70s and all you have left is your IRA or 401k that's never been taxed and you need to take a large withdrawal out to do a remodel on your home, buy a brand new car or whatever, you're going to pay huge taxes when you do that. And guess what? When you leave IRA money to your kids, they have to pay the taxes over 10 years. Somebody's paying the taxes. But hey, when you leave stocks, real estate, Anything outside of retirement to your kids, they get a step up in cost basis. They could turn around and sell it tax-free. So there's some estate planning issues in here. In test number three, we determined the best accounts to draw from today. Sometimes we blend taxable accounts with retirement account income. Or sometimes we alternate between taxable accounts. Maybe we sell a bunch of stock at a capital gains bracket, which is very favorable in retirement. If you have no other income except dividends from U.S. corporations and selling stocks or uh, you know anything that you've owned for over a year outside of a retirement account, and that's only income you had at a certain age, you could have over 80 grand of capital gain income and be at 0%. So there's a really attractive capital gains bracket. So sometimes we might blend and say, okay, this year we're going to sell a bunch of stock, individual stock of the company that you work for. And then next year, we might draw a little bit out of your IRAs or convert a little bit of your IRAs from your tax, your IRA to a Roth and pay taxes now. That's what we have to do in this scenario is we also have to do things like modeling uh, annual IRA to Roth conversions to max out your lower bracket. So in other words, if you get towards the end of the year, you realize that, hey, I'm, I'm in the 12% bracket, 
that I've got $10,000 of income left while I'm still at this 10% bracket, then you might do a small IRA to Roth conversion and pay the taxes so that you can have tax-free growth in the future. This test will also show you at age 73, again, what is happening with your required minimum distributions on your retirement accounts and how we deal with that tax burden as you age. You have to pull more and more out as you age. We're still talking about number three, the tax test, which is essentially what is the best accounts to draw from each and every year? And guess what? Sometimes there's a difference between where are you drawing your funds when the stock market is up versus the stock market is down. So when the stock market's down, typically we're living off of cash and maybe doing some IRA to Roth conversions. When the stock market's up, we might be selling stocks to replenish our cash, and that's a capital gain issue. So we have to have we have to know approximately, though, on an average basis, how much you're drawing from each account. What's the best way to do it? Is it alternating between retirement accounts and taxable accounts, or is it blending them together? Because we need to know how much cash you need in each account. As I've mentioned on radio since 1999, you need three years worth of portfolio draws in cash. So your IRAs might need some cash. Your taxable accounts might need some cash. And guess what? We can earn pretty decent return on cash these days with uh, shorter-term T-bills, um, which you can buy either directly from treasury.gov or if you have an IRA account, you have to buy them through like your Schwab or Fidelity IRA. But you can at least get a decent rate of return on your cash these days, over 4%. This all leads to test number four. Do you have three years worth of portfolio draws in safe money? When I say safe money, I'm talking about FDIC-insured bank accounts or credit unions. So, for example, if you are a married couple in a joint account, that's you know, can have up to a half a million dollars in a bank account, FDIC-insured, up to three accounts. If you have a living trust and it's you and two kids, you know, a couple and two kids, that's essentially a trust account could have a million dollars of FDIC insurance. And online banks, there's there's different options out there where you should have over, you know, almost 4% these days on your FDIC insured liquid cash. You don't need to tie money up in CDs right now because you can find Marcus and Capital One and a Capital One 360 Ally and other banks that you can link to your checking account, earn you know, above three and a half percent. And short-term bond funds are not safe money. And your 401k, what could be considered safe money would be like a stable value fund, all right? So how do you figure out the amount that three years worth of portfolio draws would be? It's not your expenses. Three years worth of your expenses is way too much cash in retirement. It's three years worth of portfolio draws. So you take your... To all of your expenses that I mentioned before, including your taxes and healthcare costs and, and you know your non-discretionary and discretionary expenses, minus Social Security income, minus pension income if you have some, and any other pretty dependable income. Like if you've had a rental property for years and years and the rental income is very dependable, I'm okay with that. And uh, when you calculate your expenses, don't forget those healthcare costs, like I said, and those taxes that occur. So it's your total expenses minus your automatic income sources. What's left over, you know you're going to draw from your portfolio every year. When the stock market's up, you might sell stocks to create that income. When the bond market's way up, if interest rates drop, you might sell bonds to create that income. When the market's down, you might just use that cash to live. And that's how you get through tough corrections. So 
we have to do a lot of programming of cash flow. So for example, even some dividends and interest come into play when we're doing the cash flow modeling, where you can very clearly see column after column. Here's my income sources. Here's my dividends and interest income. Here's my real estate income. Here's what I need for my portfolio. You have to see it all, including your tax bill. Now, I got in the business in 1993. And I was majoring in engineering and math. I don't know if I was going to go back to, I was going to be an engineer, if I was going to go back to high school and coach wrestling and teach math, what I wanted to do. So got lucky to get my way into this business through my grandfather, but I studied historical returns of the stock market. And I noticed that when I got in the business, there was only one time where the stock market declined three years in a row. And it was shortly after the Great Depression. It was 1939 through 1931, or 41 rather. And what had happened is the Great Depression, the depression occurred and then the market started to recover. And then the feds came in and raised rates a little too soon. And it, we had a, a minor recession. It wasn't a huge decline, but it, the market was negative three years in a row. And then started going up again. And I'm like, all right, well, I don't want to draw when the market's down because it looks like the market always recovers. Because then I looked at other periods of time where there was two-year declines. For example, 73 and 74, the stock market was down 41% over those two years, but then up 60% over the next two years. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to make sure that I always have mathematically enough safe money so that I can enjoy the stock market, but never have to sell when the market's down because it tends to always recover and give us these really great annual rates of returns of 10% plus. So I've got to have that three years worth of safe. So mathematically, I know I never have to draw on a down market because mathematically, if you draw after the market drops, you have less shares in your portfolio to enjoy the recovery. You see what I mean? So it's just a mathematical issue. And then I started preaching this on radio with Rob Black since 1999. 2000 came along and guess what? That's when the market was down for the second time in recent history, three years in a row in 2000, 2001, and 2002. After the big you know, bubble in 1999. You never want to draw on a down market. They will always recover. When I look at the last 14, 20% plus corrections, the average decline was negative 32%, but the market was up 38% on average three years later. So if anything, you need to train yourself to go, oh my gosh, how can I buy? How can I rebalance my portfolio? Stock market's way down. What an opportunity to invest cash or sell some bonds to buy some more stocks potentially. The other way to look at this is a 60-40 portfolio. How did a 60-40 balanced retirement-style portfolio work during the Great Recession? If you would have invested in October of 2007, stock market in a balanced portfolio would have bottomed out March of 2009. A full recovery on a 60-40 portfolio of the S&P 500 and bonds would have fully recovered by uh, November 5th of 2010. So three years and one month later. That's another example of why you want to have enough safe money to last through a period of time, like three years, like three years. So 2022, another example, stocks and bonds went down together. Now, if you go through a really difficult period of time, if you have your three years worth of safe money, your portfolio draws and enough dividends and interest where you're turning on the tap from your dividends and interests, especially on your taxable accounts, rather than reinvesting your three years worth of, of portfolio draws will probably last five to six. So you're going to have to listen to the podcast for test number five, six, and seven, Monte Carlo simulation, long-term care simulation, and 
a life plan for retirement. Moving on to test number five. Test number five for your retirement readiness. We use Monte Carlo simulation. Monte Carlo simulation can be a little bit dangerous. I've seen so many financial advisors use Monte Carlo almost as a sales tool, and they're using it very incorrectly. Monte Carlo simulation is kind of garbage in, garbage out. So if you don't have your scenario built right, if you don't have your asset allocation entered correctly, if you don't have a rebalancing strategy as part of the Monte Carlo simulation, it's complete garbage. It doesn't work. Um, And I, I can't tell you how many times in my career I've seen it used poorly versus actually used as an effective tool. So one of the things that you have to look at in your Monte Carlo simulation is, first of all, what is the Monte Carlo simulation? It takes your scenario. How much are you drawing on your portfolio and your existing asset allocation, which actual stocks, bonds, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, real estate, what do you own? And what is the historical returns and volatility of those different asset classes? And if you create a Monte Carlo simulation, essentially what you're looking at is the, how does the order of stock market return risk affect your portfolio? How does that affect your portfolio? In the live events that I do on the retirement and tax strategy events, I show an example of somebody that retired with a half a million dollars in the early 70s, drawing 5% out a year. And they had really, really good returns because there was a bull market in the 80s and 90s. But then I take that same scenario and I reverse, exactly reverse the order of the portfolio returns. So the good returns come in the beginning, but the bad returns of the early 70s come at the end when they're drawing the most money out of the portfolio and they are dead broke after 32 years. They go from like leaving $4 million to their kids to dead broke after 32 years. That is the order of stock market returns. The stock market tends to average 10 to 11% over your lifetime, but it does it in very different uh, time frames, right? It, when you retire, did you retire in 1999, just before the tech boom? Did you retire in 2007, just before the credit crisis? What is the order of stock market returns and how can it affect you? Now, in a Monte Carlo simulation, essentially you're in a situation where it takes the highs and lows, the underlying risk, other factors, and it runs your situation through at least a thousand different simulations. Looks at those asset classes that you own, the historical rates of return, how they can vary, randomizes the order, spits out a success rate for your retirement. And, you know, here, here's a couple of other situations, right? We, we went through a decade. I mean, really the first five years of my career, inflation was fairly normal. And then it has been very low in recent history compared to historical averages because we went through globalization where goods got cheaper and cheaper. And now we're kind of doing the reverse of that. So we have we might have a period of higher inflation going forward. So things can be very random when it comes to portfolio returns. If we have increasing interest rates, bonds tend to fall in value. If we have higher inflation, that can affect earnings of corporations, yet commodity prices that you can invest in can go up. 
Do we have a period of time of muted stock market returns? Like the example I gave earlier in the show of the last 15 years on a balanced portfolio is probably in a window of time, one of the one of the lowest average annual rates of return that you could look at because of 2008 and because of 2022. If you have your financial plan built correctly and all of the right input and you program the software that, hey, software, by the way, I'm going to rebalance my portfolio every year to my specific target asset allocation, whether that's 50-50, 60-40, or in our case, we become more detailed in terms of stocks, bonds, real estate, other alternative asset classes. You have to make sure that the system's realizing that as a as a financial plan, you're going to be rebalancing and maintaining a specific asset allocation. If you don't do that, which most advisors don't do, it's garbage in, garbage out. But what I want to make sure is that if I pass the linear cash flow test, I've done my tax planning, I've got my three years worth of safe money, and I program this all in, that I have a minimum of an 85% probability of success on the Monte Carlo simulations. And because 85%, why am I not saying 100? Well, because the withdrawal strategy that I use and and it's, you know, the three years worth of portfolios and safe money, you're feeding it with dividends and interest from your taxable accounts and drawing money out of your retirement accounts in the right fashion. And on a quarterly basis, you realize that, oh, I've got to sell some of my gains in my portfolio to replenish the cash that I've spent. That you can't model. That helps increase your success rate is that proper withdrawal strategy. That's what I've been specializing in is distribution and estate planning strategies in the 28 plus years of my career. I started off in the business at a very young age dealing with much older people. And so that's what I've always specialized in. So you've got to make sure that that Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo simulation that runs these thousand different random market scenarios in terms of the order of stock market returns, order of bond market returns, high inflation, low inflation, short life expectancy, long life expectancy. Do you have at least an 85% success rate? If you don't, you got to keep working or adjust your expenses, plain and simple. Test number six is a long-term care simulation. What does this mean? Well, if you make it to the age of 70, there's a 60% chance that you're going to spend some time in a nursing home. And the average stay is three years. Now, it varies a lot. And it, it happened in my own family. My grandfather, who got me into the business, spent a very, very short period of time in a nursing home before he passed away, whereas my grandmother went in for 10 years to memory care with dementia. And so the average stay in a nursing home is three years, but it, it's much different between males and females and, and depending on what age you live. And the, and the issue is, is that Medicare, Medicare Part B, supplemental insurance, it doesn't cover long-term care situations. It doesn't cover assisted living situations. That is on your own. The only time that the government kicks in is when you spend down all your assets and you're on Medicaid, or in California, it's called Medi-Cal. Now, there is laws that uh, spousal impoverishment laws, so you don't have you know one spouse thrown out on the street while the other one is receiving care. So there's ways to plan around that. But with a long-term care situation, either home health care, assisted living, or full-time nursing home situation, if I, you got to ask yourself, if I stay in a nursing home or assisted living facility for five years, what happens to your portfolio if you're single 
But if you're married, what happens to your spouse if you're married? Let's say one of you goes in for five years and then passes away. What's left over for the survivor? And your answers can help you create a plan B, which will be either buy long-term care insurance at an earlier age. Um, maybe you're trying to maintain the house for the survivor or for the kids to get a step up in cost basis. So you use a reverse mortgage to pay for long-term care. That's happened in the past. Maybe you rent your home out and move into assisted living. That's a possibility. Maybe you just sell your house outright and move into assisted living. What are you going to do to get through that period of time? You actually have to have a family conversation about this, especially if your family has a history of issues such as dementia or Alzheimer's. This, this test becomes crucial to your financial well-being and to the sanity of your kids later in life when they're helping deal with this when you're incapacitated. Again, Medicare will not cover your long-term care costs. It's Medicaid or Medi-Cal in California, which is a poverty program. You have to spend down all of your assets. You can't just easily give it away without repercussions. So there's different types of insurance out there, albeit the, the long-term care industry, as I've mentioned in the past, is a bit of a mess. The best place to buy long-term care insurance tends to be through your employer. So if you're you know, 55 years to 60 years old and you know your retirement plan is on track, you're saving enough, you're on track to retire at 65 and you have excess money, go ahead and look at buying it. When you buy it through your employer, you have less chance of rate increases than when you buy it out on your own these days. So your solutions are you self-insure because you've saved enough assets that between your assets and your home, you have plenty of money if you one or both goes into a long-term care facility or assisted living. You buy long-term care insurance. There's some new pretty decent hybrid life insurance policies where you buy life insurance that gives death benefit to your spouse or your kids. But if you go into a nursing home or need home health care and you lose two out of the six activities of daily living, like dressing, eating, bathing, condoms, those types of things. You can actually use the death benefit early um, to pay for long-term care. And uh, for example, the state of Washington, I've got a small policy because the state of Washington was going to force everybody to buy long-term care and um, never went through, but states are going to start doing this. And so I bought a small one now just to say, okay, I've, I've got it in place. I know how it works not the greatest investment you can make, but it's, it's just was part of some law that I think we're going to see this go through state by state where people are going to be required to own this insurance. Um, and it is better. I mean, it used to be terrible because it's a form of cash value life insurance, which is very rarely the right thing to do unless you're really super high income or really, really wealthy and you're doing it in a trust, but they're getting better. And if you have a family history of a really poor situation like Alzheimer's dementia, it, it might be worth it. And if you don't end up using it, then the death benefit goes to your kids. You know, and if you think about life, how it works, you know, I've seen a lot of people that I'm going to live in my house forever and get home health care, but they get to a certain age where, um, you know, family's busy and they want that companionship, the people and getting together and people end up moving, they fight it, but they move into an assisted living or more of a community center situation, community care uh, or graduated care. And they meet a lot of new friends. They start you know, playing bridge every day and doing different trips and things like that with a group of people, they're kind of happier. They get that that fulfillment and and companionship that they didn't have when they were living at home alone. Uh, there's also been situations where, you know, mom goes into a nursing home. The only asset that they have left is a home 
mom paid a hundred grand for the house. It's worth two and a half, $3 million. So if mom sells it, she's going to get nailed in taxes. So the kids want to maintain it. The kids pitch in for the cost, essentially do a loan. And then that way, when mom passes away, the house gets a step up in basis. The kids can turn around and sell it tax-free. So there's a family discussion, estate planning, tax planning that has to be done. But I've got to tell you guys that when I got into the business when I was 19 with my grandfather, who essentially worked at neighborhood banks and left and you know I helped him open an office and get going, this is, I mean, this is what I dealt with in my twenties is helping, you know, neighborhood banking uh, clients, not wealthy people, but people that just saved enough for retirement and thought they were going to leave some money to their kids. We get these calls constantly. Hey, my husband, my wife went into a nursing home. How the heck are we going to pay for this? And so this is, this is very real. And it's a very real topic that you have to model in your financial plans. You have to test for it. What's going to happen and create a family discussion of am I am I oh I'm I'm wealthy enough to self insure great no I need some sort of a life insurance either the long term care insurance or hybrid life insurance policy no my plan is to do reverse mortgage no my plan is to sell my house or no my plan is my head kids are going to help me it needs to be discussed before you're incapacitated and you need to have a good estate plan uh, uh, living trust will healthcare directive power of attorney all of it in place well prior to your seventies. That is test number six, that long-term care simulation. How will it, a long-term care stay affect you? Now, finally, test number seven, and this has become more and more important as I watch people in retirement over the 28 and a half years that I've been doing this. And the happiest people in retirement are always the ones that say, I don't know how I had time to work. I'm so busy now. I don't know how I had time to work. Those are the happiest people by far in retirement. I talk about this more and more because the ones that I see that are, you know, especially successful, um, you know, people that work 60, 70 hours a week, either for themselves or for a company where they're pretty important. They're always wanted. Their cell phone's always going off. They're always getting pulled into meetings their work gave them a sense of purpose and a sense of being needed. And then they decided to retire and they realized that their entire social network was tied up into their work or career. And then that's gone. Their phone's not ringing. They're not getting the text. So they, they feel lost. So what they do is they'll sit there and they'll, I don't know what I'm going to do. I never had time to develop hobbies, anything else. So they sit there and watch their portfolio. They watch, you know, Jim Cramer on CNBC, they're trying to think about, oh, I should be doing these trades and what's the market doing today? And they start focusing on their portfolio and literally panic out. And they turn into either uh, very jittery investors that are always trying to make moves or they just feel lost, bored, you know, watching TV all the time. You got to have a plan for this. You got to have a sense of purpose, whether it's your grandkids, your church, something you're volunteering for, like dog rescue or, or doctors without borders, those types of things. And a lot of this starts with your health, right? I mean, prior to retirement, you've got to say, okay, I don't want to be like the stories that I hear Chad talk about. I mean, when, when I was you know, in my 20s dealing with much older people and people in their 70s going into nursing homes, and we'd get... I'd go to a, you know, back with my grandfather, we'd always visit clients at their home. We sit at the kitchen table and the majority of the conversation was always about who's going to what doctor when and what are the ailments that everybody's dealing with. 
And so that's even changed my own view on retirement where I'm like, okay, there's only certain pockets of time when your kids are fun to travel with, when your kids want to travel with you, and when you're able to do the things that you want to do. For example, I've always been into health and fitness, wrestling, um, avid snowboarder, avid wake surfer, uh, hella skiing, the, the, you know, that types of things. Well, hella snowboarding, let's call it. But, you know, yeah, I like to be dropped off at the top of a mountain on my snowboard and find a line down, right? Um, really, really into that. And I, I realized that, okay, the way that I've, you know, worked out and wrestled and, and snowboarded and done all this stuff, like my knees and hips are probably going to pay for it later in life. So I would rather work a little bit later, which keeps me cognitively healthy, and spend more money now on memories with my kids and things that I might not be able to do if I retire when I'm 65. So the very active travel lifestyle that's actually more expensive, like the the boating trips and the, the, the hella skiing and cat skiing trips and things like that, I'd rather delay my retirement and do that now and do other types of traveling, like more of the toury, um, you know, a historical type site traveling when I'm later, when I'm later in life. And I also see people that, okay, I'm going to spend the next 20 years doing all this traveling. And all of a sudden they have grandkids and they're moving from, you know, California to Denver to be next to their kids, their grandkids and life just changes and your priorities change. So either way, you need to have a plan for that. Go to chadburton.com or go to Apple or any other place you get the iTunes and you can find the rest of the podcast. Have a great day, everyone. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.